Okay, seven o'clock, so we will start talking more about propagation in anisotropic materials. Oops, that's not the slide I wanted to go to. We'll be talking about optical activity, both phenomenologically and mathematical descriptions of it. So, first, uh, a demonstration of what optical activity is. This was by request from Akire. <coughs> he's not here, but he's, he's nearby. So let's see. Uh, I have two polarizers. These are linear polarizers. So uh, you can see the light extinct when they're crossed, which represents the transmission axis, and uh, transmits when they're parallel. And I have some corn syrup, which happens to be an optically active material. So if I cross, let's see, cross the polarizers. Can you show it here? Yeah, sure. Uh, don't look at the light projected through here. Just look at the, uh, you can hold the back one, I guess. Look through the polarizers at the screen. It should be black, except for the corn syrup. You can probably see the corn syrup through there. Don't look at the projection on the screen because the bottle's also focusing the light, so it's not uh, producing a shadow. If I rotate this, kind of gets inverted, right? The corn syrup looks black. The rest of it looks uh, more or less transparent. Okay, yeah, it's going to be angular, angle dependent, right? Um, and I should check. Okay, actually I didn't need the second polarizer because I've got polarized light to work with, so I didn't need the third hand either. Uh, <laughs> so maybe you can just look at, well, I do need it because you need something to look through on your end. But, um, okay, so that's optical activity. I'm gonna be really freaked out if you're standing there the whole <laughs> lecture. Have a seat. Um, okay, so why corn syrup? Why does that behave like this? How can we describe that behavior uh, in a mathematical sense? It all has to do with the molecular structure of the material. So we saw this last time that um, different structured crystals have different uh, macroscopic optical properties. This isn't a crystal, it's a liquid, but the molecules have some sort of chirality to them. You think of there's some sort of helical component to the molecule that can either be right-handed or left-handed, depending on the direction of the winding. So you've probably heard of sugars being right-handed or left-handed uh, and the uh, basically organic molecules tending to have right-handed or left-handed. I know in nature one is favored over the other, although I don't know offhand, I forget offhand which is favored. Anyone recall? Okay. It's one of those mysteries why one particular orientation should be favored relative to the other, but it is. Um, and so because there's this helicity to the molecule, um, we get some rotation at the plane of polarization as the light goes through the material. So we can understand that by considering an electromagnetic wave propagating. And I've drawn a couple helical molecules here. Well, that's a lie. I copied and pasted them from the web. But I did draw the little balls and arrows. So imagine these balls represent some free charge uh, 
uh, or, well, it's not free, but it's, it's free to move along the molecule. It's bound within the molecule. Um, our discussion up until now of the way a material responds to an applied electromagnetic field is that the electric field can drive those charges. The electric field produces a force on a charge, so if this were a net positive charge, an upwards field would push it up, produce a dipole moment on this molecule, and that dipole moment contributes to the electric displacement vector. Okay, so that's completely neglecting anything happening due to the B field. And in a material that doesn't have this uh, chiral molecular structure, the magnetic field has no net effect. But this helix, this helical molecule, if you were to view it end on here, it would look like a, a wound spring. And a magnetic field that's drawn in red oscillating through the coil of the spring, it's driving an EMF, it's driving current around the spring. It's just acting like a uh, magnetic induct induction coil. And so that current, as it winds around that spring, spirals towards one end of the molecule or the other, depending on the net flux of magnetic field. So we also get an electric displacement component due to uh, molecules being driven by the magnetic field in the orthogonal direction. So if you have an electric field that's polarized here vertically, um, the electric displacement is going to have a horizontal component. So there's going to be some rotation of the electric displacement vector relative to the electric field. And as that wave propagates, that rotation continues and the entire plane of polarization can rotate. So we treat it as if there's a different index of refraction for left and right-handed polarization. So left and right circular polarization states. So we'll call those N sub L and N sub R. And then we treat it as a birefringent material so that the difference in the indices of refraction determines how much uh, phase shift there is between right and left polarization. So if you start with right circular polarization and left circular polarization that are in phase, um, and I add those up, as I've drawn here, I would have vertical polarization. But if you allow one to advance relative to the other, I'm just trying to do this pictorially now. We'll do it mathematically later. So if you allow this polarization state to advance, so it's because it's a right circular polarization, it's rotated here by 90 degrees. Um, when I add these two up, well, let me, let me be more, well, I'll leave it like that. When I add these two up, I'm going to get a polarization state that's now rotated. Okay, and the more I advance, this polarization state relative to that one, the more this net polarization direction rotates. Okay. Okay, so let's use this uh, idea to work out the uh, behavior of the dielectric tensor. That's really what drives our understanding of how the electromagnetic field propagates through material. 
So in the absence of optical activity, we said that the electric displacement equals epsilon e, e is the electric field. And certainly in an isotropic material, this relationship is easy to understand because epsilon is a scalar. You just say these two vectors are proportional to each other. Um, now, if we take a liquid, which would be isotropic, but we introduce um, this component to the electric displacement that's orthogonal to the driving electric field, we can write that as an additional term here with a direction that's not along the electric field but perpendicular to it. So we can represent it by some cross product. And this vector g that we use is called the gyration vector. It's in the direction of propagation. Your material is isotropic. If it's like uh, the corn syrup, the value of this vector g is just some constant times whichever direction the wave is propagating in. It's possible to have a material that's anisotropic and optically active, in which case this value of g is orientation dependent. But it's a vector. It's in the direction of propagation. And depending on which direction you're propagating, its length can be a different length, meaning this, this term can have a different magnitude. Okay, you may see in a textbook um, this gyration matrix, which is what's used to calculate the gyration vector for a particular direction. So we're not really going to, to calculate this vector based on the orientation in the crystal. We're going to just base, basically start with, with that as a given. Okay, but you can calculate it based on some properties of the material. Okay, so we're going to do a trick that we've done before, mathematically, where we take a cross product, we write it as a matrix, and then we write that matrix as a matrix product of one matrix times the electric field vector. Okay, so G cross E, we can write as IJK, DXGYGZ, DXGYEZ. We can work out determinant of this matrix and show that it has to equal this matrix times this matrix times this vector. And I'm going to skip that math because there's plenty of other math that we're going to do today. Okay, so I did that if you want to refresh your memory when you were deriving the wave equation in an anisotropic material. <coughs> okay, so We'll write this matrix as G bar, big G bar. And we can now define our dielectric tensor as this matrix plus this matrix times the electric field. So the dielectric tensor, we can take our original dielectric tensor plus this perturbation due to the optical activity and fold those into a single tensor that then multiplies the electric field to get the electric displacement. 
understanding how the light propagates through the optically active material comes down to understanding the properties of this dielectric tensor. Okay, we're going to go about two different methods of finding how the light would propagate through an optically active material. First is going to be finding the eigenpolarizations and eigenvalues of this matrix. The second is going to be called coupled mode analysis, where we treat this perturbation as small compared to that. And we say that the light should propagate through with only a slight perturbation to its original eigenstate. They're both going to yield the same results. You're going to be asked to show, uh, to derive things based on both of those techniques in next week's homework. Okay, so first, let's describe another form of optical activity, one that's dependent on an externally applied magnetic field. We call it Faraday rotation when the plane of polarization is rotated through a material in the presence of an applied external field. Okay, the optical activity we just looked at was in the, there was no external magnetic field. I just put the corn syrup between two cross polarizers and it rotated the polarization. If I took a Faraday, Faraday active material and put it between cross polarizers, I'd have no net effect. But if I applied a magnetic field along the direction of propagation or against the direction of propagation, I'd get a rotation. Okay, and we can understand this in a similar method. Um, charges that are being driven by the electric field feel a Lorentz force, QV cross B. They're being driven in a direction defined by the electric field. And then they feel a force that's orthogonal to that. Um, due to the magnetic field. And so there's a component to the electric displacement that's given by B cross E. Okay. And this B is an external magnetic field, not the magnetic field of the electromagnetic wave. So like we had before, we have an expression for the electric displacement that has the original electric field component, and it has this additional term, which is orthogonal in direction. Now it's a function of this externally applied vector B, whereas before it was a function of G, the gyration vector. The gyration vector, I said, was always in the direction of propagation. This vector is always in the direction of the external magnetic field. And that turns out to be a very important distinction. Uh, the equation, the expression here, looks identical in form. If we just replace this gamma B with the gyration vector G, we have the exact same expression. The difference is, is that when light goes through a material and then goes back, its direction of propagation switches. Okay, but the gyration vector is always in the direction of propagation. So going forward and going back, um, it's always going through and seeing the same uh, sign of this, this term. Whereas if it goes through a material and comes back, 
the direction of the, the direction of propagation may change, but the direction of the externally applied magnetic field would not. So as a result, if it goes through a Faraday rotator in the direction of the magnetic field and then it reflects off something and comes back, now it's going against the magnetic field. And so the sign of this perturbation term flips when you have uh, Faraday rotation. It does not flip when you have optical activity and the direction of propagation switches. Okay, and practically what that means is that a, a wave double passing a material will have net zero polarization rotation from optical activity, but will have twice the one-way rotation due to Faraday rotation. So this property is very important in optical experiments. There's a device called a Faraday isolator, which is used to prevent light reflecting from components in an experiment from reflecting back into your laser and damaging things. So if you have a laser here, you'll often have components that intentionally or not reflect some light right back towards the laser. So if you have this Faraday rotator and an externally applied magnetic field along the direction of propagation, and a linear polarizer a pair of linear polarizers uh, for our purposes we'll put them at 0 degrees and at 45 degrees and you arrange the strength of the magnetic field and the length of the Faraday rotator such that light that comes in gets rotated 45 degrees through the Faraday rotator then it should pass through this second polarizer and it can go on to your experiment. But if it gets retro-reflected, then when it goes through the Faraday rotator, it's going to experience another 45 degrees of rotation and it'll get blocked by that second polarizer. So it's used both for isolating your, your laser here from downstream optics. And it's also useful if you want to separate the reflected beam to do something, to detect it or to, to use it for something. Uh, you can have a polarizing beam splitter here that picks it off and, and uses, uses that beam when otherwise it would be basically inaccessible. So I said we we're going to do two different methods for calculating the effect of optical activity. So let's consider this example. We have an isotropic material. So epsilon is a scalar, but it's perturbed, so it's got this additional term to it. And I've written out the additional term now in as uh, this is G-bar, the matrix that represents our gyration vector crossed with the electric field. So there's some optical activity. Let's first figure out um, 
the effect that this has on a linear polarized plane wave as it propagates along the z direction through a thickness d of the material. What would the output wave look like? Meaning, what would the polarization state of the output wave be? So we'll actually, we'll do this problem twice. The first time we'll do it um, by finding the eigenvalues of our matrix. So I'll sketch the uh, solutions. I'll show you a numerical solution. And uh, then I think we'll go through all the algebra of the full solution. Okay, so I've got D equals, and I'll call it epsilon prime E, where epsilon prime is equal to epsilon plus delta epsilon. And I can write that as epsilon times 1 minus delta 0 delta 1 0 0 0 1 where let's see delta is equal to gz epsilon naught over epsilon And I've assumed propagation in the z direction. Okay, so first of all, why can I assume it's propagating in the z direction if I wasn't told? I am told. That's easy. I'm told in the problem it's propagating along the z direction. But even if I weren't told that, uh, I could assume it without any loss of generality. Why? It's isotropic. I can just, directions are all the same. I can pick one, call it z, say it's propagating in that direction. Um, why is it that gx and gy I'm setting to zero? Yeah. G is in the direction of propagation. So g sub z, I'm calling g, gx equals gy equals zero. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'll add it there. Okay, so if my, my first attempt at a solution will be to find the uh, eigenmodes of propagation. By definition, an eigen mode is a mode that will propagate through the crystal without changing its polarization. And that will have, um, let me see if I, uh, I'll assume E. You know, I think in my notes I call it u. u is an eigenvector of the epsilon prime such that 
when I multiply epsilon by u, I get some scalar times u. And if I relate that to my definition over here for the electric displacement, And what this says is, if I have an electric field that's polarized along an eigenvector, when I multiply it by epsilon, I'll get an electric displacement that's in the same direction. And because in an isotropic material, epsilon is related to the index of refraction by n is equal to the square root of epsilon, the eigenvalues that I get here will be uh, the square root of those eigenvalues will be the index of refraction. The eigenvalues of epsilon will give me the index of refraction. The eigenvectors will give me the components of the x, y, and z electric fields that can propagate through without changing their, their orientation. Then what I'll do is I will say um, that the output electric field looks like some superposition of the um, original electric field expressed in terms of its eigenvectors, which I'll call E sub i. I guess I've called it u. Let's call it u sub i times some amplitude times some phase and each eigenvector will have a different associated eigenvalue, therefore a different associated index of refraction. So the light will go through at different speeds, and that will affect the phase of that eigenvector as it propagates to the output. When I add up all the eigenvectors, I will get the output electric field. What's lambda here? The eigenvalue of this expression. N sub i is the square root of Let me just rewrite this bigger. E to the i, n sub i, k naught z times e sub i. Uh, polar polarized in the long direction of the i's eigenvalues. And e sub i is the amplitude of the input polarization along the i-th um, eigenvalue direction. 
this, I'm uh, sorry, that is uh, the imaginary eye. Specific. I could use J, <laughs> but I won't, because that would just be confusing later on. Okay, so that's the basic solution. Um, one method of finding it is to call in one of our calculational friends. You can do this pretty easily in Mathematica. Um, you can do it pretty easily in MATLAB if you have a numerical expression. Um, this one we can actually do analytically, and, and we will. But I'll just highlight uh, the steps here before we work out the details. Um, I've defined M as my uh, epsilon matrix. You can see it written here in its matrix form. And that matches what we have, only I haven't bothered to substitute the delta for these GZ epsilon not terms. I defined a few numerical values so that later on I could go in and actually get some numbers out and simplify the expressions a bit. I chose an epsilon that's consistent with an index of a fraction of 1.5. So um, I don't quite have it here, but epsilon equals the index of a fraction squared. I've chosen 1.5 as the index of a fraction. I've chosen, pro chosen propagation along z, and I explicitly defined some value for the gyration vector as magnitude. I just chose, what I tried to do is just choose a small value, um, and that would allow me to determine at least uh, the numerically the direction of the eigenvalues. So gx, gy is equal to 0, and I just set epsilon not equal to 1 here. Turns out that won't affect the direction of the eigenvalues, only the value of the eigenvectors. Uh, switch that around. It won't affect the direction of the eigenvectors, just the value of the eigenvalues. Okay, so uh, I have my eigen system. I simplified it, although that doesn't really look any simpler. Um, I, oh, so eigen system of M means it will find the eigenvalues and the eigenvectors of this matrix M, which it has then simplified and expressed here. So this uh, is, let's see, one, two, three different eigenvalues. And then this term in brackets is the first eigenvector. Is that right? No, that doesn't quite. Yeah, this is a vector, this is a vector, these are the eigenvalues. Is that right? Yeah, I think you're, yeah, you're right. So these are the eigenvalues. So it's basically it's telling me the eigenvalues and the eigenvectors. We don't really need to figure out which is which because I've already done the math here. I told it that the index of a fraction should be the eigenvalues of m, square root. That's what I have here. And it's calculated those. You can see that it, one of the indices of refraction got bumped up a little bit, one got bumped down a little bit, and one stayed the same. And if I want to find the eigenpolarizations, I can find the 
eigenvectors of m. This chop just truncates any numerically insignificant decimal points. I think it's so it says 1 instead of 1.00. Um, and what we see is an eigenvector that looks like x minus y 0, 0, 0, and some, some quantity in the z direction, and one that has one unit in x, one unit in y, one imaginary unit in y, and things equal 0. Um, so if we write an expression as e to the minus i kz minus omega t, if this is the expression for a wave propagating in the z direction, If we look at what these eigenvectors represent, let's just plug those in as the vector direction of this initial electric field, 1 minus i, 0, e to the minus i, kz minus omega t. I've taken the first eigenvector here, assuming the input electric field is polarized along that direction, we can write this as an x component a y component where I can treat the minus i as a phase shift of minus pi over minus sign there, a little plus pi over 2 there. So for example, if this is a cosine wave, this is a sine wave. represents then we can trace out the real parts of the x and y components. So at, uh, at a location, say z equals 0, where this term goes to 0, I can trace out what the tip of the electric field vector is doing. And at t equals 0, the real part of this is 1. The x component is 1. The y component is 0 at t equals 0. And then as time evolves, um, the real part of this goes to 0, while the real part of this as t, as omega t gets closer to pi over 2, this approaches positive 1. The y component increases while the x component is decreasing. And the tip of the electric field vector is going to trace out a circle that, seen from the direction that this is propagating, is right circular polarization. Okay, so the effect of this imaginary term here in y is a phase shift of the y component, which turns linear polarization into circular polarization. 
Okay, so one of the eigenstates of the material is right circular polarization. Okay, so you can probably guess then what this eigenstate is. Left circular polarization. And how about this one? What's that? Polarization along the z direction. Okay, well, uh, we had an isotropic material with light going along z. So the light should be transverse. There shouldn't be any polarization in that direction. Okay, so another way of saying that is for the given gyration vector, if we did have light that was, say, propagating along x, but it was polarized along z, um, it wouldn't see any component of the gyration vector in the direction of propagation. It wouldn't see any change in the index of refraction. Its eigenstate would be the same, and its eigenvalue would be unchanged. Okay. Uh, for our purposes, we basically ignore that, that term and say that's not representing one of our propagating solutions, given the constraints that we started with. Okay, so there's going to be a number of different phenomena that produce changes to the permittivity tensor that we then want to understand how those changes affect the propagation of the light, and this is going to be a standard technique. Okay, so I think it's worth actually working through the algebra now that we've sort of let the computer do it and seen the big picture. Let me work through the, uh, the details. I want, I have that value for the uh, epsilon tensor. So I can write this expression right there, the eigenvalue expression. In matrix form. basically cancel the vectors from each side and write this as um, oh what's the easiest way to write this If I'd been a little smarter when I defined delta, I could have written this so that I didn't have this epsilon appearing in some of the terms and not in the other terms. Yeah, uh, down there? No, that one is okay. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and I think actually at this point I will perhaps rewrite what I'm calling delta. 
you'll allow me to do this. Well, no, you know what, I'll just, I'll leave it as it is, that's fine. Okay, so in order for this to be true, um, either epsilon equals zero or the determinant of this matrix equals zero. So I'm interested in the determinant of the matrix equaling zero. So I have uh, this diagonal giving me this term. Right, and then uh, this diagonal is zero, this diagonal is zero, this diagonal is zero, this diagonal is zero, and then one more non-diagonal, non-zero term. I either have the first term being 0 here, which means lambda equals epsilon. The eigenvalue is just that of the unperturbed, um, the unperturbed value of epsilon for the isotropic material. And that would correspond to uh, an index of refraction that's the square root of epsilon. Or I need this term in brackets to be 0. correspond to an index of refraction that equals this. And we can see that this is the index of refraction of the isotropic material in the absence of any optical activity. And then these two uh, indices of refraction represent that bumped up a little bit and bumped down a little bit, assuming delta is small compared to 1. Okay, so we saw that. We saw that numerically. And now I'll remind you that once we have the eigenvalues, we can find the eigenvectors by evaluating this eigenvalue expression. So let me write the eigenvectors in terms of their components. And I'll pick this eigenvector here to evaluate first. And if I just include the plus or minus, I'm really evaluating two possible eigenvectors at once. 
So this is my eigenvalue expression right here with that eigenvector plugged in. Now I can just solve for the values u1, u2, and u3 that allow that to be true. So I can, for example, cross out the epsilons from both sides, and I end up with three equations, right? Three equations, three unknowns, uh, you know, u1, u2, u3, three unknowns. u1 times one plus or minus delta is equal to u1 minus i delta u2, u2 times one plus or minus delta equal to i delta u1 plus u2, u3 times one plus or minus delta is equal to u3. So I can solve these equations simultaneously. So the first thing I can note is if delta is not equal to zero, then u3 has to equal zero. Next, let me just pick this equation here. I'll solve it for u2. Um, I'll subtract 1 from both sides. Cancel the deltas. u2 equals um, plus or minus i u1. And this is what we saw before. Let me pick a value for u1. So let's let u1 equal 1. Then u2 is going to be plus or minus i. u3 is going to be 0. That's what we had. So again, it's saying left or right circularly polarized light will propagate through the, the material without the polarization state changing. As it propagates, it's going to acquire a phase that depends on how far it goes and the index of refraction that it sees. And that depends on whether or not it's right or left circular polarization. Okay, so. We still haven't answered our question, which is after the light goes a distance d, what does its polarization state look like? But we now have a straightforward way to figure that out. So we'll let the input light be some input, so I'll call it e naught in the x direction. Okay, so again. Without loss of generality, well, actually, it's not true. I was told that the light was linearly polarized at the input. I'm going to define that direction as the x direction. The x and y directions are degenerate. So I want to write that in terms of my eigenvectors. So I can write um, 
e naught 0, 0, that's my input, is equal to some amplitude for the term that has a plus in it. times that eigenvector, looks like 1 plus i 0, plus uh, some amplitude for the other eigenvector, so this was, I think this was left circularly polarized, this was right circularly polarized, so let me write that in. So I can write the input field as the sum of some left circular polarization and some right circular polarization. This expression tells me E naught equals EL plus ER, and that 0 equals EL times I minus I times ER. So together, I have EL equals ER equals E not over 2. Okay, so I can write my input field in terms of the eigenvectors. I know their polarization state doesn't change when they go through the material. So all I have to do now at the output is say that E out is equal to, and I'm going to write it first in a little bit of a uh, general way. So E of z is equal to some phase shift as the left circular polarized light goes along z times the amplitude of the left circular polarization. in the direction in the with the left circular polarization. The right circularly polarized light gets a different phase shift. Because it sees a different index of refraction. So I just add the phase shifts the left and right circular polarized light, and I add them back up. Right? And if those phase shifts are different, they're no longer going to add up necessarily to be in the x direction. So I was interested in polarization after it goes a distance d. So I'll plug in d for z, and I'll write um, el and er, I'll bring out as e naught over 2. And the phases, I will add up inside my bracket here. Actually.
the bracket is common to both terms. So 1 plus 1 is 2. No, 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 no. I was, I'm sorry. I was doing it right the first time. So this was just a sum of these two components where I've combined uh, the terms in this uh, vector form. And then what I've done is I have a phase shift that depends on NL and a phase shift that depends on NR. And I factored out the average phase shift and the difference phase shift. So I can say that E times, so I have the average phase shift here and the difference here. When I multiply these together and I add up the exponents, I get NL over 2 plus NL over 2, NL, plus NR minus NR gives me 0. So this term times this term looks like this, e to the i NL k naught z. Likewise, this term times this term gives me a term that depends on NR. factored out the common mode phase shift and I've left in the differential mode phase shift. Oh, yeah, there should be. Okay, so, and I wrote it, the terms in the brackets in a form that you probably recognize. Right? What's that's cosine, that's minus sine. Right, so some initial amplitude, some average phase, 
cosine of nL minus nR over 2 k naught d. And this is minus sine nL minus nR over 2 k naught d, 0. So reality check, plug in d equals 0. Goes to your 0 thickness of material. This is 1. This is 0. Phase shift doesn't have any phase shift here. And I just recover my initial input field along x. But as I go far enough that this term in parentheses equals pi over 2, then the polarization is rotated and I no longer have any x component and it's all y. So this shows that it's rotating from x to minus y to minus x to plus y. So that's um, right-handed rotation. I'm not going to spend any more time okay. trying to figure that one out because it's rotation. And, and you, I'll leave it as an exercise to you to figure out if you call that right or left. Okay, so um, we've shown that we can diagonalize or find the eigenvalues of the uh, epsilon matrix, describe our input polarization along the eigenvectors of that. Each eigenvector propagates through independently requiring a different phase shift. We can easily calculate what the output eigenvectors look like with their new phase shifts and then add them back up and get the output polarization state and interpret that as something meaningful. Any questions on the method? Okay. So will you... So I said there are two ways that we could analyze this. Uh, the other one is called coupled mode analysis. And these basic techniques we'll use a lot both in this class and you'll see the same techniques applied in other areas of physics or mathematics where you have quantities expressed in uh, matrix relationships. Basically, they're just different techniques for solving matrix expressions. And all, our, all of our physics was done in the first 10 minutes of class where we wrote the uh, matrix expression for the uh, effect of optical activity. Okay, so let me outline this technique. We say that we have a material that in the absence of a perturbation has eigenmodes that I've written as A1 and A2 with propagation vectors K1 and K2. So this might be uh, polarization along X, polarization along Y. If the material is isotropic, K1 and K2 are going to be the same. 
that's anisotropic, we may have different values of k, because we have different indices of refraction for polarization along x and polarization along y. And any arbitrary field can be described as some amount of field in the x direction plus some amount of field in the y direction. And as they propagate through the material, they acquire different phases. So that's basically what we just described. Um, now, if you add a perturbation, you change what the normal modes are, what the uh, eigenmodes of the material are. And so we no longer have E1 and E2 being our eigenmodes of propagation. We have new eigenmodes, E3 and E4. We can write those in terms of E1 and E2. Starting with some input field, we can decompose our input field into uh, amplitudes along E3 and E4. Those amplitudes we'll call A3 and A4. And once we know the index of refraction for those two normal modes, we can find K, figure out how much phase it accumulates. This is what we just did. Okay. Alternatively, we can assume a solution that still has the light being described in terms of its original unperturbed eigenpolarization, that's the E1 and E2. But now, instead of saying um, these two polarization states are not changing, we can say they're slowly changing as a function of time. As long as the perturbation is small, change is slow. So we can say light starts in the X polarization and it slowly rotates to Y. And say the amplitude of the X polarization is going to slowly decrease, the amplitude of the Y polarization is going to slowly increase, for example. Okay, and sometimes um, that's a more intuitive way to express our, our description in a perturbed state. Okay, so let's look at the same problem. So remind you, we have uh, this perturbation. We're propagating along z. The x and y terms are zero. And we have the uh, permittivity tensor that we were just looking at. So we have the wave equation in an anisotropic material. And if we're propagating along z, we can write our solutions as um, some amplitude in x and y change. that change as z goes along and has some oscillating phase in z. Okay, so we just write an x and a y component they're slowly varying as per our initial um, methodology. And we know that omega over k has to equal 1 over the square root of mu epsilon in order for that wave equation to be satisfied. We derived that uh, second day of the class, I think. And since E is only varying along Z. We have plane waves that we're considering here. We can do what we've done before where we let uh, nabla, or del, the del operator, equal uh, D by DZ in the direction of propagation. So this, this K represents the Z hat direction, IJK that direction. Okay, so our wave equation, the left side use this vector identity 
making the substitution that del equals to uh, basically k times d by dz. Del squared is k squared, uh, k hat squared, times the second derivative of u with respect to z. This term I've written here, and this term of the wave equation is in a spatial, doesn't have any spatial dependence, so it's not affected by this substitution. Okay, so I've rewritten the wave equation now in terms of k. I can write these two spatial dependent terms in this form, the second derivative of this expression. Um, we see there's two derivatives here the k dot e inside times a k. So I bring the second derivative inside. Uh, I have 2 d by dz. I can factor that out because the k's aren't changing. It's a function of time. It's a function of position. So I can write the second derivative of this term in brackets. That term in brackets is the transverse component of the electric field. Okay, so e is the electric field e dot the direction of propagation. It's a component of the pro electric field in the direction of propagation. And now I've explicitly said that is a vector in the direction of propagation. And I've subtracted it from the original electric field. So I've taken the original electric field. I've removed any component in the direction of propagation. So I'm left with the transverse component. Okay, so this is the transverse component. If I'm going to start in an isotropic material, as this question asked me to do, then the transverse component is the same as the electric field. It's all transverse. So I can just replace everything in this bracket with E, which is a very long-winded of deriving the isotropic wave equation. Okay, but I put it in there because um, you'll encounter problems where you're not in an isotropic material. So you can go back to the notes and you can start from here. Okay, so this is our basic wave equation with the perturbed epsilon. That represents a wave equation in the x direction for polarization along x and a wave equation for polarization along y. They both have to be satisfied. Um, we'll come back to that in a minute. If we take the second derivative of this term, there's before this amplitude was a constant. If you have an eigenmode of propagation, the amplitude doesn't change. But here we're allowing it to vary slowly. Okay, so this is now a function of the propagation direction, or the propagation distance of z. So when I take the second derivative of this term in parentheses, I have to use the chain rule and consider the derivative of this term as well as the derivative of that term. Okay, so I do that. The chain rule, the first time I apply it, gives me two terms. And then I have to take the derivative again, because I'm looking for the second derivative. So each of these, I apply the chain rule to. I end up with four terms. Here they are. Two of those terms are identical. Right. In one case, I took the derivative of the first term times the second. The other time, I took the second times the derivative of the first. And then when I did the derivatives again, I ended up with the same term. So these two terms here are identical. So I can just write 2 times that value.
And every term has an e to the i kz minus omega t in it. So I'll factor that out. Okay, so this term in brackets times this plus uh, this term, which is independent of, uh, which didn't have any z derivatives in it, has to equal 0. But here I have a k squared, and I'm right here I have an omega squared mu times my permittivity tensor. Well, k squared equals omega squared mu epsilon. So this term, this term, and that term are going to cancel. And there's a minus sign that's escaping me at the moment. But I'm going to neglect. That should be just, did I just write that wrong? Wrote that as a positive k squared. So I will leave this as an opportunity for you to get extra credit by looking for the missing minus sign if you go through this. Um, that'll be a useful exercise as well for the homework. Um, but the idea that I'm getting at is that uh, this term right here is going to go away. And that term up there that has the omega squared mu epsilon is going to go away. The delta epsilon doesn't. So I get the first two terms coming down. This term going away, the epsilon going away, but the term with the delta epsilon comes down. And I have the same form for the x component and for the y component. And that's equal 0. Now I apply my constraint that the variation in the amplitude is slow compared to the variation in the phase. Okay, that is to say, the variation in the amplitude E is slow compared to the phase, which varies at a rate k. Okay, so the second derivative of E with respect to z is much less than k times the first derivative. That lets me neglect these terms that have a d squared, the second derivative of E. So if I do that, I again assume this form for my uh, perturbation tensor, for propagation along z. Then I can write those two, the x and y components of that expression like this and like that. So I've neglected the first term over here was going to be a second derivative. I've just forgotten about that. And I've explicitly evaluated my uh, delta epsilon times e. And so what I get. I'm going to go back here. I had a delta epsilon times E. And because my delta epsilon has these off-diagonal terms, in the x component of the equation, I get an EY. And in the y component of the equation, I get an EX coming from those off-diagonal terms. So delta epsilon times
yeah, one of those should have a different sign. Okay. I type these up half an hour before class, slowly getting rid of the handwritten parts, and I missed that. Okay. So there's another. You can figure out which one of these has the wrong sign. I'll give extra credit for that as well. Um, okay, so we have two equations. Each of these has to independently be zero. Um, they're first order coupled equations, right? The derivative of x depends on y, the derivative of the y component depends on the x component. So there's a number of ways to solve such equations. One way is we can solve um, this expression for e sub y. It looks like this. We can then plug that value into this derivative take the derivative, and we get the second derivative of e sub x is proportional to e sub x. Right, and this is a, an ordinary uh, uncoupled differential equation that we can solve. So we know this is going to have sine and cosine solutions. So we can write a solution that has sine and cosine parts of unknown amplitude. And then we can apply the boundary condition that at z equals 0, uh, the amplitude of the x component should be e naught, and the amplitude of the y component should be 0. And if we do that, I know at z equals 0, this expression should equal e naught. This is the expression for the x component of the field. So what that says is at z equals 0, this really should be 0. This term goes to 1. This term goes to 0. It says a equals e naught. I can plug this expression for ex into my solution for ey. I have to differentiate it first. But then I get an expression for ey right here. So I've written that down here where I've done that differentiation. And again, I apply my, apply my boundary condition. Say at z equals 0, where okay, this term goes away, and this term gives me b. That the y component of the electric field has to equal 0. That means b has to equal 0. And now, now I can write ex and ey right here. And I can see that at z equals 0, the y component is 0, the x component is e naught. So I start with the light uh, going into the material polarized along x. And just like I had before, as it propagates through the material, um, the magnitude of the x component is going to decrease. The magnitude of the y component is going to go from 0 down to minus 1, right, down to minus e naught. So I get the, the tip of the electric field vector tracing out a circle, same sense that I had last time get the same result. Okay, so we outlined two different methods. There's a lot to do in one day, but I wanted to do it because I wanted you to see um, that the results give the same value. So I wanted to do it while it's fresh in your mind. We'll use these methods a lot in the class. You can use whatever is more convenient for you. Um, in the homework, you're asked to do a problem very similar to this using both methods. So um, your book is a little bit uh, nondescript in, this, this in how it talks about the uh, coupled mode analysis. It kind of says, if you do the coupled mode analysis, you end up with this expression for the 
results. You might refer to the notes, uh, and it goes through a little bit more detail on that. 